I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, start on this message. Lord, as we open up Scripture, we open up a revelation that you've poured out for us to understand not only you, but the plan that you have for our lives. And so this morning, God, we, we just open our hearts up that uh, we can discover Scripture afresh and that your Spirit would guide us, lead our thinking, and uh, paint the pictures into our imagination, into our understanding of, um, of what our future will be. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the, um, <clears throat> the key verse for the series is, um, however, it is, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. So the whole series is built around trying to create a picture in our imagination of what heaven is, and we've been told by God that we'll never achieve that. Okay, so I'm trying to achieve the impossible or the plausible with the impossible and the implausible. Okay, so, you know, good luck with that, Craig, because what's going to happen here is uh, X amount of years' time when we, uh, we finally go to be with the Lord, um, you're going to come back to me and say, Craig, you gave, it a, you gave it a go, mate, but you were miles out. And uh, so I concede defeat before we even begin again today that no eye has seen, no mind has conceived what I prepared for those who love me. So the pictures that we paint and the images that we create and our understanding of what heaven is, uh, we know we're dealing with the impossible. So um, I've used also this illustration. Um, it's called the Aventine Keyhole. This is a view through a keyhole that is on the Aventine Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome. And uh, Michaela and I went there when we were in Rome some years ago and looked through this keyhole. No one knows whether this keyhole was set up for this purpose, but immediately behind it is a, uh, you can't really see it, but is a tree-lined walkway. And it just happens that you look straight down on St. Peter's Basilica, which is about four to five kilometers away. Okay, so it looks a lot closer there than it is, but it really is tiny in the distance. And this image, to me, helps us see what we're about in this series, and that is we're looking through a keyhole scripture to have a view or to, to build a view of the holy city that awaits us. You all right with that? Okay. Um, it's, if you're ever in Rome, it's well worth going to see, not only just for the sake of this keyhole, which, um, which in itself is intriguing, unique, but there is a monastery uh, right next to it. And at 4.30 uh, in the afternoon, the monks come out, about 40 of them, and they sing vespers, they do the vespers, sing the psalms uh, for around about 40 minutes before they go off for dinner. And it was a unique experience because we, we were there, Michaela and I, and one other person, and 40 monks singing in front of us. It was pretty cool. Um, so anyway... By the way, this whole morning is going to be like what I'm doing now. It's going to be all over the place, all right? Just sort of let you know. I know what I'm doing. Um, we'll push on. Again, the image that we're given by the Apostle Paul of what our view of life should be is one he says you've just got to keep your head up. Since then, Paul said, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So what Paul is saying to the Colossians is think big picture. Think long term. 
play the long game with your life and, and what it is that you're aspiring to. Uh, otherwise, you can get caught up in the little day-by-day stuff and you can lose perspective. Keep, um, set your minds on things above. Is that good advice? It's good advice, isn't it? Because uh, we can get overwhelmed by the, the details and the challenges of the little things. And uh, the important thing for us is to keep perspective. And I think in Christendom, there are two perspectives that are defining for us. And, I, and we were talking about one already. We're talking about heaven. The first, though, is, um, is the cross. The cross is the most powerful image in the whole of the Christian story. Because there we know that Christ reconciled for us uh, our life with God by dying for our sin and setting us free to have a relationship with God. And that is a powerful, powerful image. But the image is, is also in an exploded way more than just the, the forgiveness that God gives us. It's also an image of resilience because we see in Christ his journey to the cross his suffering, even at the point where he was unjustifiably um, killed and his forgiveness that he offered to people who were treating him poorly. Uh, But then ultimately there's the resurrection. And so we have hope in the confidence, hope and confidence in the fact that, um, that righteousness wins, that rightness wins. And so there's this big picture of resilience in here. And of course, the other side of it is, is heaven. Heaven provides us with hope, reminds us that this world is not all that there is and that we have a future beyond this place and all that it, the struggles that come with it, all the suffering that we know the world endures or you endure. And so um, these things are really important for us, the cross and a picture of heaven. They lift us above and beyond. Now, let me... As I said, there's a few rabbit holes here this morning, and I'm going to take us intentionally down one, uh, because I think these perspectives are absolutely vital when it comes to raising kids. And the reason why I say that is is this. Um, We're talking about um, two priorities that I think are vital when it comes to raising a family. Uh, The first one is resilience, the ability to overcome adversity, which is essentially what the cross describes for us at a very uh, social level slash relational level, okay? Um, not only it's salvation, but it's a picture for us of resilience. And um, I think it's really vital that we teach our kids to be resilient. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by not fighting every fight for them, yeah? So we talk in these terms about uh, lawnmower parents. Have you heard of lawnmower parents? Those are the ones who mow the lawn in front of their children so that the children can walk on the nice cut grass um, and never have any troubles, um, you could call it trailblazing parents, you know, where you chop all the, the prickles and the whatever's out of the way so that you, your kids have a nice walk through into the future, no troubles at all. Helicopter parents, that's another term that's used about, it's sort of a hover over their children, you know, just like this, and all perfect. I don't know about you guys, but I used to have to take a week off, off work every, uh, every time my child in year 10 did a science project. How many of you remember those days? Eh? I remember asking the teacher, when's the fourth form year 10 science project? Because I know there's parents, we're supposed to do it for them, and then we get marked. Yeah? Um, there's the truth. There's the truth. But what we're doing to our kids by doing this is we're not teaching them or allowing them 
the opportunity to learn resilience. Resilience is the ability to recognise that you're going to get a few hits, but you're going to overcome it. Yes, some of the times it's unjustified, get over it, okay? Look at the cross. Jesus forgave those who unjustifiably hurt him. Um, I know when I was a kid at school, I remember going to boys' college, Tauranga Boys' College, my mum said to me, if you get the cane at school, your dad will give you another couple when you get home. <laughs> okay? These days, it's like, if your child gets in trouble at school, you go and sue the teacher, you know, or take the teacher on, because, you know, how dare they speak poorly to my little Johnny, you know? That's not resilience. That's not resilience. And even if the teacher's unjustified, you say, guess what? Welcome to the real world. Welcome to the real world. Because life isn't fair. Okay? So you've got to teach your kids resilience. You know, I'm not saying make sure your kids get, become victimized. I'm not talking about that. The second, and, and the whole thing about the cross is it teaches us about resilience, doesn't it? It's a powerful image of resilience and ultimately good overcoming evil. Because I can guarantee you, if you teach your kids resilience, they'll come through as adults and grow. If you don't teach your kids resilience, they will, uh, they will, they'll, they'll just melt every time there's a problem. And you won't always be there to fix it. The second thing that's really vital for parenting is that uh, to teach your children that they are responsible for their own joy. They are responsible for keeping themselves happy. You as the parent are not responsible for keeping them happy. Okay? They have to find the ability to do that for themselves. And uh, I know with my own kids, sometimes school holidays, about week four, dad on board. And I look at them, I go, yep, I've seen boredom before. You look bored. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Because you are responsible. All right? And um, I got this sort of crazy idea that we should be able to be in a scenario where our children should be able to know resilience and joy, even if we turn off the electricity. Whoa. Electricity is only a hundred-year-old phenomenon. Okay? We've only had it for a hundred years in the, in, the, in the manner that we have it today. You know? Oh, my goodness. You think the world would come to an end? People would just all had their you know, lives taken from them if electricity disappears. So how do, we, how do we help our young people with this? Maybe, well, this is what I used to do, actually. I make them sound like a good parent. I wasn't necessarily. But um, you'd, you get a map. You get a map of where all the cell phone coverage is in New Zealand. Okay, because they have these little circles, you know, with the antennas. And then these little weird gaps where the circles don't intersect. The little holes in the grid. That's where you go. That's where you go on holiday. You know? And the kids will spend the first, you know, three days running around like this. <laughs> I'm trying to find reception. But after a while, they stop and they become human beings and talk to each other. Yeah? It's all about resilience. Sorry, young folks. Like I'm having to go at you, I'm not. I'm just saying, man, if you, can, if you can do life with resilience and find your own hope and your own joy, everything opens up for you. Everything. These are the, character, these are the things of character. And the cross reminds us that resilience is ours for the taking. And heaven reminds me that joy is not about this world. 
Joy is not ultimately going to be found by accumulation or by how many um, likes you get on Facebook or whatever else might measure your joy these days. So the perspectives that we hold on to with, with regards to life are just absolutely vital. And uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds us when in chapter 11, this is the whole chapter about faith and faithfulness, uh, when we have... When we're told that people such as um, Abel, uh, Enoch, and the likes, the early, early fathers, how they held on to promises of God that kept them sustained, kept them going, kept them moving forward. Um, here, Hebrews 11, 13 and 14 says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. So they never made it. They never got exactly what they were aiming at. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. In other words, they're saying, this, this, this place that we live is not our ultimate destiny. It's, it's not the place that we're wanting to celebrate because we're looking for a country, a place, a set of values that are bigger than what it is that we have now. Okay, better than what we have now. And so these ancients of the faith were celebrated for the reasons that we're describing. Now, don't think that it's just the ancients of the faith that have this image of another city. Just yesterday, I, I took a wedding in town and I had to come back into, into countdown here, grab a few groceries. And um, there were all these people there with images of another city. You know where they, what they were doing? They were lining up at the lotto outlet. <laughs> they had images. They have dreams and visions of what, 35 million? Was it one last night? I don't think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now look, we'd all want to win 35 million, right? That'd be, that'd be, I, I've got to meet God halfway and buy a ticket. That, that's, that's probably where my problem is. Um, but... Uh, uh, and I'm not putting anybody on the, on the spot here by who, who does. I mean, it's all a bit of fun. And uh, Lotto pays for a lot of things around this country. Um, but I do remember the kids coming to me when they were teenagers going, hey, Dad, Mom, it's $20 million to be won. Why don't we buy a ticket and win? Like, okay. So I said, look, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to go buy a Lotto ticket to prove to you that you don't win. And <laughs> so, of course, I go in there. And we won 20 bucks. So that, that didn't help much. So I took that $20 and invested it in another lotto ticket. And then we didn't win. And that proved the point. <laughs> but um, yeah, we all have dreams and aspirations of a heavenly city, of somewhere uh, beyond here. Our hope is that this is a, there's a better place. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this. If they had, not, if they had been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, go back to where they came from. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay? So again, this future hope that took these ancient men and women of faith and took them on a journey. Because why? Because the hope that they have is not centered around the world that we are in at the moment or the aspirations that we have to collect things as we seem to have a, um, a predisposition to do. So the big question when we talk about heaven, of course, is who qualifies? Who qualifies for heaven? Uh, 
And this is where it all gets a little bit uh, challenging because um, there's lots of different views of heaven and who gets to heaven. Firstly, we need to talk about what we call Christian universalism. Um, my summary, everyone's in heaven, even if you don't want to be there, all right? So it means that, and it's quite attractive, it's quite attractive because it's this idea is that the cross of Christ, when he died for the sins of the world, we're all in, whether we know it or not, okay? Well, it's all in. And, and there's something very attractive about that, isn't there? Because it says that, that that salvation that Christ won for us is so inclusive and so powerful that even if you hate Jesus, even if you hate Jesus, you're in anyway, okay? So nice idea, but um, far removed from what the Scriptures tell us, far removed from what the Scriptures tell us. So we have to go back to understanding what it is that... Um, that the Bible tells us, and I, I'm going to just sort of um, hit it straight up right here, because the Jesus who talks to us about heaven talks to us also about hell. The Jesus who talks to us about being saved tells us that we are saved from something, and that by definition is hell, and, it, and that by definition in itself is a separation from God. Hell is to be separated from God. Okay, so um, the series is not about hell, the series is about heaven, this, but I need to touch on this today to help us understand the journey that we're all on, because we have choices that we have to make. Jesus, <clears throat> his own words said, <clears throat> this is hard to talk about, isn't it? <clears throat> then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, the image there, of course, is of judgment. And um, the Bible talks about two judgments. The judgment uh, that we face in regards to um, being separated out, the sheep and the goats, as we're told, those who are in Christ or those who have rejected Christ. And then there's another judgment in regards to the Christian community being given uh, rewards, crowns for the different things that we have done with the life that we've led. And so two different judgments. But the first one is, is obviously a separation. And in itself, this is a real challenge for us because we look at the, um, the moral character of God and we ask ourselves, can we really believe that the God who created the world and love and us uh, would do such a thing as to cast people out of his presence? And so <clears throat> we're like, ooh, Ooh, what does this say about God? And yet, it doesn't take much thinking for us to actually understand that, yes, we too would do the same thing in the same place. Because we look around us and we go, well, people, do people surely deserve that? Do they deserve to be cast away from God for eternity? And then we go, oh, hold on. What about Adolf Hitler? Uh, Pol Pot. Stalin killed millions. What about that guy who poured petrol on his family in Brisbane last weekend? All of a sudden, we're like, hmm, okay, yeah, I can understand judgment. I can understand God's moral judgment. And I can understand the fact that in the world that we live, where people who have heard of Christ and who choose to reject him, um, you know, all they are really doing is getting what they've chosen. Does it make sense? They're choosing to reject Christ. 
So, you know, if, if, I, had, <clears throat> if I had a neighbor and, you know, we hated each other, um, what would heaven look like for me? It certainly wouldn't look like living with him for eternity, you know? I get on great with my neighbors, so don't. This is a, okay, so we, we, we know that heaven is a place, and we know that hell is a place. And the images that we have of hell are, um, <clears throat> are very powerful, like this one here talks about uh, fire. Now, <clears throat> to put into perspective this, it's really important to understand that these images that are used to describe eternal separation from God were images that were prevalent in the day. Um, this is really important to understand. So <clears throat> the, the culture and the system of the day was this, is if you were in a position where you couldn't pay your bills, okay, or if you've been punished for something that you've done wrong, you were put in either prison or put into slavery. Now, this slavery was sort of a, um, it was all, all very well to be a slave, depended on what you were being asked to do or told you had to do. The worst thing to be told to do or have to do as a slave was found in the Greek and Roman cultures. And this is all around believe it or not, around bathing. You say, well, what's wrong with having a bath? You know, it's like we all say bath time's hell when you've got a two-year-old, but this isn't what I'm talking about here. Because those hot pools where people would go and luxuriate, underneath those pools was a little city that kept the fires going. Some of the larger pools that the Romans and the Greeks had uh, literally had a 1,000 people working on a roster on a week-by-week basis. And they would literally bring a 1,000 tons or more of wood a day in underneath the pools to heat the water, <clears throat> to, um, to obviously heat the water to make this, uh, this, uh, this uh, bathing complex work. And it was deemed to be the worst job because you were underground, it was hot, it was black, uh, and it was literally hell on earth, or hell under earth. <clears throat> and the imagery there is enhanced because um, when you'd have a sauna, and we know what it's like today, you've got the hot rocks in the, in the middle of a sauna and you pour water on it, and that creates the steam, right? Um, so what would happen is people from below would come up into the sauna and they would literally have a pitchfork with a burning log on it, okay? And they'd walk into the sauna and they were blackened and they'd put this burning log in the sauna and then the uh, steam would erupt from that and it would enhance the sauna. So you can see where these images that we have, these old historic images of, of, of hell come from. And so these were places that were like, that's the last place that you ever want to go. And so what's being told to us in Scripture here is that the last thing you ever want to have is to be separated from God because it's like being enslaved in one of those hell holes underneath the ground where people were, um, were told that they had to enslave themselves for years in this hot, horrible place. Does that make sense? You can see the imagery there, eh? Very powerful. Okay. So... Let's move on a little bit because that's all a bit depressing, okay? But who qualifies for heaven? Well, let's read from the Living Bible 
what Romans chapter 3 says. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Okay, quite simply, we're told that by putting our faith in Christ, um, we are made right with God. Okay, but this goes on to describe it in more detail. For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. One of the arguments um, against the moral qualities of God, uh, things like, well, this person is such a nice person, uh, yet they're not a, a Christian, and you're telling me that they can't expect to go to be with God in heaven. And the, the simple truth is this, is that a person might be a really nice person, but everyone has sinned. And unless we reconcile that sin, we are essentially in rebellion. We can be a lovely neighbor, a lovely mum, etc., etc., but we're talking here about rebellion towards God. And the rebellion towards God is centered around this top line here. We have all sinned. Every one of us have sinned. And it doesn't matter whether it's a little sin or a big sin, we've all sinned. And we go, oh, just a little sin? Is that what, is that a problem? Now, imagine if you went to the doctor and the doctor, um, you know, did an assessment on you and said, oh, you're fundamentally all right. You've only got a little bit of coronavirus. Okay? Well, look at it from that angle. You know, Sickness is sickness, and sin is sin, and God says we've got to deal with it. And I've made a way to deal with it. My son, Jesus, died for it. You have faith that he died for your sin, asked for forgiveness, and you have begun a journey with God. You are born again. You have engaged in a divine transaction that initiates a whole new life for you that begins with you accepting Christ. And this is what Scripture is telling us. And uh, ultimately, this Romans passage rolls out like this. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to, dem to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So, hell and heaven, but we're also talking about this journey of of, of how we get to be with God. And the promise that we're told and the hope that we're given is the fact that we get taken from the world that we live in now to be with God, okay? So that's the hope that we have. And um, the disciples were discussing this with Jesus on the last night of Jesus' ministry uh, in the upper room. And, um, and Jesus said he had to go, and the disciples were deeply concerned about this. And so Thomas asked the question, and, uh, you know, where are you going? And Jesus replied, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, there's two stories here that I want to associate with this this uh, piece of scripture, because they're, they're both important. 
Okay, in the day, in Jesus' time, of course, they didn't have um, <clears throat> Teslas to get us around everywhere, okay? But they had uh, camels and donkeys and Shanks's pony, as it's normally called. So when people would travel, they would travel in groups. You know, you know the story of the Good Samaritan and how he helps out the guy who got beaten up? He got beaten up because he was on his own, right? So you don't get beaten up by traveling in a group. Now, I want us to just imagine that we're in this caravan and we're traveling. Caravan is a group of people traveling to Tepuki. All right, and so what we're wanting to do now is to determine where we're going to stay when we get to Tepuki. So the goal is to have a place waiting for you that will meet your needs uh, and, and when you get there, it's all prepared to go because you're going to arrive tired, right? And so, so what happens is within our group here, um, we get some young guy who's keen, a couple of young guys ideally, who are keen and fit, and they go ahead of us to arrange the accommodation. So, um, yeah, so maybe someone like Ollie, who's out training for rugby at the moment. Eh? So Ollie would be keen. What he'd do is he'd say, oh, I'm in. And so off he'd run over the hill to Tupuki, and he'd go and he'd have a bit of money with it, put the deposit down on the house. And everybody's going to say, I wonder what Ollie's got for us. Eh? I wonder what he has organized for us. And so this is the imagery that we're being told here by this, this uh, story of Jesus. Because um, what happens is about you know, an hour before you get into town, Ollie's coming back and he's like, you wouldn't believe it. You got no idea what I've prepared. Man, we've got the best place to stay, the best food, the best drink, the best beds. And, and guess what? It's all laid on. It's all laid on. And people are like, whoa, bring it on. Okay? So that's the image when Jesus describes how he will go away and prepare a place and then he will come back for us. Does it make sense? It's an imagery that was very common in the day. And people were like, oh yeah, Jesus is going to go away and he's going to come back after a period. Okay, that's cool. But there's another um, image or set of images that are wrapped up in this as well. And this is important for us to also understand. It's in the context of a wedding. See, within Judaism, the wedding was uh, done over an extended period of time. And um, you might remember how it is in the, the birth narrative of Jesus, the story of Jesus' birth, where Mary and Joseph were betrothed, right? Betrothed to be married. Okay, that means that we sort of think of it a little bit like an engagement, but a betrothal was far more um, uh, permanent. It was, you had to be divorced from a betrothal. So what would happen is a young couple uh, would be brought together by their families, Okay, that's how it worked. How many of you folks aren't married, you young people under the age of 30? How many of you aren't married here? All right, so mum and dad are going to arrange your, your life partner for you, all right? What do you think of that? Great idea, eh? Great idea. After a while, after 20 or 30 years, you might like them. That will be cool, okay? But the way it would happen is families would come together and they would arrange for their son and daughter to marry. And a bride price was established. Okay, so a dowry was paid to the family of the daughter. Okay, the family of the bride. 
and that's all good. So what would happen is a celebration was held at the betrothal, and an agreement was made, uh, it was a good party, and then the bride-to-be was left where she belonged with her family, and the groom would go off with his mum and dad, and he would begin to build an extension on his parents' home. So he's gone to prepare a room. All right? And what would happen is that the, the bride, she would light a lamp and put it in the windowsill of her room as a signal to everybody around her that she was betrothed, but also a symbol to say, when my husband comes to get me, he will know where I am. All right? So it wasn't uncommon within any city to see a number of these oil lamps on windowsills around the place. Uh, and you're probably, some of you will be thinking about the parable of the foolish virgins who kept their oil topped up or some who didn't. But here's the deal. This is what happened. The groom would go away to his parents' household and he'd start a building exercise. So he'd be there putting on this addition to his parents' home so that he can bring his bride back to be uh, living with them. And uh, so he'd be there, you know, you know, kitchen there, lounge room there, sky TV there, you know, jacuzzi there, all cool, you know, and he'd be beavering away. And, and at night, he'd have to study the Torah, the law, because he had to be a godly husband. So everybody was, you know, helping him get to a place where he could be a great husband. And, uh, you know, he'd get exposed to... Um, usually at that time when they're about to get married, they're exposed to the Song of Solomon, the love letters that are found within the Old Testament. You know, it's pretty saucy stuff, the old Song of Solomon, you know. Uh, your hair is like a, <laughs> like a flock of goats, you know. <laughs> Try that one, guys, see how far it gets you. you know? um, but anyway, the imagery was all there. It was all pretty, you know, pretty hot stuff. So all this would happen, but here's the deal. It was the father of the groom who made the decision as to when the house was ready for the bride to come. So you can imagine this every night after the son had spent ages preparing this house, he'd say, what do you reckon, Dad? Is it good to go? We're good to go, Dad? Good to go, Dad? And Dad would walk around and go, hmm... No, I think you could do a bit better. That paint job looks a bit rough. I wouldn't want to bring my new wife into this home. And so a week later, what do you reckon, Dad? We're good to go. We're good to go, Dad. Let's, let's bring this thing on. And, uh, and, so, and then finally, Dad would go, it's time. And the, the groom would then go and approach the bride, and he would approach the bride knowing that her lamp was burning for him. Isn't that beautiful? The lamp was burning for him. And then the celebration was made and had, and usually the wedding took about a week, good old wedding, a week long, and, um, and the, uh, the bride went and lived with the groom. So again, another image of I've gone to prepare a place for you so that you could come and be with me. Okay, and this time it's an image of a wedding. And it's really this picture that I want us to finish on today because the image that God has of us is that we are the bride. We are the bride. And we are being prepared collectively for, the, for this wedding feast of the Lamb, where we collectively get to go to be 
to this, uh, in heaven, this wedding feast that is going to be held for us ultimately as the bride of Christ, as we are presented before the Father as this bride whom uh, the Son, Jesus, has been preparing a place for. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's a great thing. And it, and it gives us so many images and pictures of what you know, great relationships look like, great family look like, you know, the anticipation of marriage, uh, the excitement of uh, looking forward to uh, that wedding day, a community celebrating it together, families involved. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture. So after Jesus had said these words that he is going to go away to prepare a place for them, um, Thomas said this, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And the reason why Jesus, I think, used this, this term, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is because it simplifies all the theology, all the doctrine, all the thinking, all the speculation, and basically tells every human being on the planet, just put your trust in me. I'm going to get you there. Let's keep it simple. Yeah, because Jesus said to us that no one knows the hour or the day of his return. All right? So, so we've got these people freaking out, working out the week or the month. We're not, not going to know the hour or the day, so the week or the month. And, and we, we, just, we just do each other's heads in trying to speculate on this stuff. We've been told that if we put our faith in Christ, trust him for the journey, He's the one who's already preparing the place for us to go. He's the place, preparing the place that we're going to stay. Okay? He's the one who's gone to Tupuki to, you know, prepare that. Okay, the image has limit, limitations. All right. Um, <clears throat> but he's the one who's preparing for us. And we put our confidence in him. We keep it simple. Not stupid. We keep it simple. Then we live a life that is filled with resilience because we know the price he paid for us and he's demonstrated a life that is resilient and we have hope because we know that this world is not all there is and even if you win the lotto, nothing is going to compare to heaven. I like that. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we... Um, we look through this keyhole and we, we see things that just spark our imagination and just um, excite us about the future. And we're so grateful for that because without that hope, Lord, we'd be um, just looking around us wondering what the meaning of life is all about. But God, you've reminded us that being in your family is absolutely vital, not only for our destiny, but our well-being. And so we thank you, Lord, that the salvation that you've given us is complete, it is full, it is robust, and in doing so, Lord, it embraces us at every level. And we thank you, Jesus, that you made it simple by saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And so in this moment, Lord, if, if there are those here who haven't put their faith in Jesus, then he becomes that doorway, that doorway of hope, whom we can hold on to by asking to come into our lives. 
But Father, we, um, we thank you that um, the images that we've been given of heaven and even the images of hell help us to understand what's at stake when it comes to what Jesus laid down his life to give us, to remind us the power of the cross and the essential nature of it, the ability to be able to win for us eternity with God. Wow, what an amazing, amazing salvation we have. And so God, we, we, we put our trust in you afresh. We put our confidence in you for all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.